0: word. Please take your copy of God's word and turn back to the first passage that we read together in the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah. And here in our afternoon service, we've been working our way through this book, Old Testament book of the Bible, and we come this afternoon to chapter 18, Isaiah chapter 18. It begins with these words, woe to the land shadowing with wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. We've been seeing how in this section of Isaiah, as we turn from one nation to another nation in the regions surrounding uh, the people of Israel, uh, we've seen that there is a great deal that has happened, that is happening at the time of the writing, and what is prophesied of what will yet happen. So there's a great deal of, of activity and in that sense it's nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun in this respect that nations throughout history have always been places of great happenings, great events that are, that are unfolding. And of course the relationship between nations is also significant within the annals of the history of, of the world. And so as we come to our own day and we Look out the window and see nations, great and small, with all sorts of things stirring and wars and rumors of wars, as is in every generation and all sorts of developments that are taking place. We really are not seeing anything new in that respect. The scene and its details has changed, but the pattern remains the same throughout all of these ages. And what we know now is what we knew then when we're reading the Old Testament or the New Testament and God is speaking into the particulars of various places and people. We know that God is always at work. So we know, first of all, he's sovereign. He's controlling all the events. He holds the heart of the king in his hand. He directs it whithersoever he will as a, as a water course. We know that promotion comes neither from the north, south, east, or west. God raises up one. God casts down another. We know that the Lord is the one who controls uh, the events of time and space, including big events involving big nations throughout the world. So we know that. We know that God is the one who is controlling all these things. The other thing that we know clearly, both now and then, back in the days of Isaiah, is that at the end of the day, all that's happening is all about God's people. Right? We've had that reinforced again and again and again in the Old Testament. That's Israel. And so all the events of old ancient history, huge nations, revolve around what God is doing with his church, his people, his kingdom. That was true in the New Testament. It's been true throughout the history of the world. It is true today that amidst all of the uh, events that unfold uh, in our lifetime, Every one of them is tied by God to what he is doing with his church. They're the window dressing, as I like to say, the focal point is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So we've been seeing that pattern and theme woven throughout these chapters that we're in the midst of this section of, of Isaiah. And so now we come uh, this afternoon to Ethiopia, what's described in our passage is Ethiopia. So we know that at the time that Isaiah is writing, there's there's two big uh, forces at work. You have Assyria, which we've been hearing about, growing in power and influence. It's expansion. It's a hand. It's in the hand of Jehovah. He's using it to chasten Israel, threaten Judah, to bring repentance, and so on. So we have Assyria up in the north, and they're they're at work. And then the other kind of world power, is still Egypt. Egypt is still a big player uh, at the time. And these two. Assyria uh, and Egypt are, in, in many respects, at this moment in history, rivals that are contending for uh, the s- supremacy, if you will, on the on the world stage. And of course, between Assyria and Egypt is who? Israel, right? A crossroads in between these these two uh, these two countries in in the middle. But we're hearing about in chapter eighteen this country that's called Ethiopia. We'll describe more in a moment. Ethiopia is not in the middle where Israel is. It's in a far-flung place, if you will, on the far side of, of Egypt, this people group that's on the far side of, of Egypt. And what's happening is that they, too, are becoming alarmed like everybody else with the, the rise and influence and potential tyranny and despotism of Assyria. Their cage is getting rattled, even though they're even further away. They're alarmed at what's happening, and this is what lies behind in terms of the historical context of this particular passage. The title of our sermon is Submission to the Sovereign, and in the spirit of full disclosure, this is a very difficult chapter. So everyone, all the commentators, everyone will tell you, this is a difficult chapter. It's a difficult chapter in terms of translation. Translation. So there are portions, like in verse 2, very difficult to translate, know what direction to go, passive, active, is it referring, it should be translated this way or that way, uh, in terms of the vocabulary even. So there's translation problems. There's also, kind of along with that in chapter 18, difficulties with interpretation. So what exactly does it mean? What, What exactly is being described? And so you can imagine that consequently application from that interpretation can be a challenge as well. Nevertheless, God's given to us, given it to us, in His inspired Word for very important reasons. And I believe, with the Spirit's help and diligent work, we are able uh, to understand what it's saying and what the implications are—the uh, the ongoing implications for ourselves. We're going to note three things um, this afternoon. First of all, we begin with alarm. So we begin with alarm in those first few verses. We read verse one, uh, it goes on, that sendeth ambassadors by the sea, even in vessels of bulrushes upon the water, saying, Go, ye swift messengers, to a nation scattered and peeled, to a people terrible from their beginning hitherto, a nation meted out and trodden down, whose land the rivers have spoiled, all ye inhabitants of the world and dwellers on the earth. See ye, when he lifted up an ensign, On the mountains, and when he bloweth a trumpet, hear ye. So here we have the description of alarm. So we're told that in this woe, uh, we have another people. We heard about Syria and Damascus, as well as Israel last week. We've looked at others prior to that. This one is described as Ethiopia. You'll note in the margin of your Bible that it also says Cush which is probably more helpful to us, to think of it as, as Cush. Uh, Ethiopia is actually given to us via the Greeks. So that, that, that word or title for the, the people, Ethiopia, comes from the Greeks. But Cush, a descendant of, of Ham, uh, that people is who's being referred to. And it's, it's actually the place geographically is south of Egypt. So it's what we would now call in the modern world in terms of geography, Sudan. It would be associated probably with Sudan uh, south of Egypt, beyond Egypt uh, with respects to, uh, to Israel. So this would have been a, a very dark-skinned uh, people closely associated with Egypt during this period of, of the Old Testament. There are times when uh, Kush and or Ethiopia and Egypt are making alliances together. Uh, there are periods when one conquers the other. We have references to that, so they're actually united uh, at, at various points. But they're even more distant, as I was saying in the introduction, from Assyria. So even more distant than, than Egypt. Right? Egypt would be between Ethiopia, uh, modern day Sudan. And, and Syria. We think of Sudan today, and wow, what a, what a story, right? For about a millennium, they have been ravaged with war, North Sudan, South Sudan, you know, Christian concentration in the south, Muslim concentration in the north, all of the uh, upheaval and bloodshed that has taken place uh, in that country in modern, what we think of as more modern, uh, uh, history, and even to the contemporary uh, moment. But this is who is being described, the people of Ethiopia or Kush. And they're concerned about Assyria. They're concerned about, uh, along with Egypt, the threat that Assyria poses uh, to them. And so they're sending ambassadors, they're sending an envoy, if you will, uh, to Israel. And they're coming uh, to bring uh, the word about how we need to prepare for conflict with Assyria, and so on. It's possible that Isaiah, who was closely uh, connected, relationally and otherwise, probably, uh, to the uh, royal courts in in Israel, may have even have seen these people who have come from far and heard about their country and heard about the circumstances of uh, where they live and, and so on and so forth. But they're from a different place, and they're sending these, these envoys. So it speaks in verse 2, They sendeth ambassadors by the sea, even in vessels of bulrushes upon the water, saying, Go ye swift messengers to a nation scattered and peeled, and so on. So you realize that Egypt is known for what, children? What body of water? The Nile, right? And the Nile dumps into the Mediterranean. And when you're in Egypt, which we'll be hearing about next week, God willing, you know, they speak even to this present day of upper and lower Egypt. And we tend to associate upper with north and lower with south, but it's the opposite in Egypt because the low-lying land is at the Mediterranean, and as you move south in Egypt, the elevation rises so that the Nile is flowing north toward the Mediterranean. But as you follow the Nile, this humongous body of water, right, significant body of water, when you're in, when you're in lower Egypt, the north of Egypt, as you come down the Nile, it ends up splintering right, into all sorts of directions. So you have this enormous network of rivers. And when they flood, they would, some of them would merge and almost become like a sea. But you have this enormous uh, network of various tributaries uh, that flow or feed into the Nile. And so this is south of, of, of Egypt. and because It extend to what we think of as the borders of Sudan and so on uh, today, a land of rivers that they've crossed, Right? And so they're described here as um, go ye swift uh, messengers to a nation scattered and peeled. You know, or people that are spread out and and peeled, polished. It could be translated, um, it could also be translated tall and smooth or dragged away and peeled. I think the more conservative, if I can say that, way of translating is closer to what we have, the scattered and peeled, or the dragged away and peeled. The question becomes, you know, is this referring to the what we think of as the Sudanese, or is this referring to uh, Egypt, or to Israel itself, and so on. Uh, but the fact that they are being sent uh, to a place that's being described, it, it would seem as if this is actually envoys going from uh, Ethiopia, to other places to, to raise the alarm. And if you think later on about the description of a nation meted out, trodden underfoot, whose land of rivers is, have spoiled, coming to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, um, the Mount Zion. And so here we have you know, upheaval. So that, that much is clear. And we saw upheaval in Syria. We saw upheaval in Ephraim or in, in Israel. Uh, we're going to see upheaval in the hearts and minds of Egypt. So too with Ethiopia regarding the threat of, of, of Assyria. And so they're sending ambassadors along these waters of the upper courses of the Nile uh, to summons people to be, to, to be ready for Assyria, It speaks about an ensign being lifted up and a trumpet uh, being blown with regards to all of this. So the, the bottom line is this. There is a feeling of chaos, right? There's a feeling of alarm. There's a sense of vulnerability, of foreboding doom. There is, um, for the, the people who are living at this time, overwhelming fear. You know, what is going on? You know, what is going to happen? What are we going to do? It seems inevitable that there is destruction that is headed our way, that we nor any other could possibly stop. And so there's an overwhelming sense of fear. And so the question then comes, this whole context of alarm brings the question, where do we turn? Right? You can send ambassadors to various countries, you can try to form alliances, you can try to uh, assemble... Uh, folk but at the end of the day it's going to be a fool's errand it's going to be worthless so where is it that we turn and that brings us to our second point we have the context is alarm but in the in the case of large-scale alarm we turn secondly to the sovereign so in verse 4 verses 4 to 6 the sovereign and that is of course Jehovah Jehovah hosts for so the Lord said unto me I will take my rest, and I will consider in my dwelling place like a clear heat upon herbs and like a cloud of dew in the heat of of harvest. Here you have a picture of Jehovah. Upheaval below on this earth. People are scrambling in every direction. They're bracing themselves. They're trembling in fear. Here is Jehovah at rest, unmoved, unflustered, untouched, by any of this. He's above it all. He's over it all because he's controlling it all. He is resting like a man in the heat of of the day. And he's described as being above it all, right? I will take my rest. I will consider in in my dwelling place, right? His dwelling place is above in the highest heavens, like a clear heat upon herbs, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest, right? That the thin clouds, which are up high, that Bring down dew in in due course. He's the one who is above all of these things. He's described, it goes on in verse 5, you know, like a a vine dresser. He's he's sitting there and he's watching the growth and he sees the little sprigs. He's watching them sprout out and grow. He's seeing the branches develop. He's seeing the flower and bud and all that, that comes with that. He's watching and beholding and controlling all of these things. And he's ready, as the passage says, to prune at any moment, even when the, the best vintage is, is ready. For afore the harvest, when the bud is perfect, the sour grape is ripening in the flower, he shall both cut off the sprigs with the pruning hooks, and take away and cut down the branches. The Lord is saying, in essence, look, all that you're seeing. I am, I am preparing it. I am the one who is overseeing it. And amidst the sweltering heat, Assyria is ripening like a harvest. It's doing exactly what I want. And the fact is that when the time comes, I will mow it down. I will bring absolute desolation. And the point here is, as, you, as, as, as becomes clear, it's not going to reach Cush. It's not going to reach Ethiopia. Assyria, who looks like they're going to come and just wash over uh, even the outreaches of, of, of Ethiopia, modern-day Sudan, it will be stopped. The Lord will rise and will cut them down. And so you have this world, right? You have Rezin and Pika and Ahaz and Tiglath, Pelzler, and they're, there's, they're creating upheaval. And there's all of this craziness that's, that's taking place. And the Lord says, I will bring it to naught. And not only so, he's going to bring it to naught with what appears no visible effort on his part. So God is taking his people and he is bending their minds. He is even, in our case, bending our minds the problem is is that we fixate on the things that are immediately in front of us we look at the threats we look at the we listen with attentiveness to all of the nonsense and and the the craziness of of the world you know people are glued at times to the their news networks and they're following every twist and turn and up and down and everything that's predicted about what will happen and where it's going and what the consequences are and so on and so forth. And it's all measured at a human scale. If this leader does this, then this country will do that. And, oh, well, these economic forces have had an impact on what's happened with the development. It's pushing them in this direction. And there's, you know, this other thing that's going on with internal conflict within two different people groups in a certain country, and so on. And everybody's trying to map it out, almost like you know, engineers mapping out the planning of a building and trying to put all of the pieces together. The problem is everyone is missing the most important, really the only important piece, and that is the architect who's designing it, the Lord himself, who's putting all these pieces together. And so limiting oneself, measuring everything on a human scale in terms of human causation is a temptation that the church faces in every age. And as I said at the beginning, the scene has changed, but the principles remain the same for us today. The Lord is telling his people through the prophet Isaiah. He's bringing a word from heaven, and he's speaking even to To nations that are not his own, like Ethiopia. And he's saying, look up. He's saying, fix your gaze on me. I'm the one who's at work here, and I am blissfully at at rest. All that that is happening, there's no consternation in heaven. There's no wringing of hands in heaven. Uh, There's no sweat and, and trembling and so on and so forth in heaven. The point is God's people need their head and heart in heaven. We need to get our head above this world and our heart hung outside of this world to realize the Lord is unchangeable. The Lord is truly sovereign. The Lord is orchestrating everything after his own good pleasure. We sang about it earlier. We sang about it in the Psalms, the Lord does all his own holy will, right? He's the one who's, who's bringing all these things to pass according to his good pleasure. And so this doctrine of God's sovereignty, this doctrine of divine providence, this doctrine of regarding the works of God uh, sustaining and controlling and governing all of, all the events of space and time all creatures and all of their actions, is something eminently practical. It's not merely a theological notion to which we adhere. It's not merely a doctrine that we are called upon to defend. That truth is unto godliness, like every truth. The doctrines of God's word are to penetrate and to have implications transforming influences upon our soul. What good is it if a person says, yes, I believe in the biblical doctrine of providence as defined in our confession and catechisms, but in fact live as if it weren't true. Think and assess things as if it weren't true. Right. This is what the Puritans called practical atheism. You know, one who who confesses that there is a God and that the triune God of the Bible is the living and true God, and yet when it comes into the practical details of their life, they live as if God was not. No thought of God. No consciousness of God. No sense of the Lord's presence. The Lord is the one who is at work here. And the believer thinks like that. It controls how they interpret history, how they interpret you know, contemporary context and circumstances, but it also it also molds how they feel about it, how we respond to it. The Lord is in the heavens, and he is the one who holds the heart of the king in his hand to direct it whithersoever he will as a watercourse. And lo and behold, what do we discover? The Lord's saying, I'm going to take all this away. I'll cut down the branches. They shall be left together, under the fowls of the mountains, the beasts of the earth, the fowls shall summer, shall summer upon them, and all the beasts of the earth shall winter upon them. He's saying, when I pull the plug on Assyria, story over. Everything you thought was going to happen can't and won't happen. They're going to be left wrecked. They're going to be left as prey out in the open for the birds to feed upon and so on and so forth. In other words, what we find is that God makes even the wrath of man to praise him. We sing about that in Psalm 76, don't we? Where it says in verse 9, When God arose to judgment to save all the meek of the earth, surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. The remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. Vow and pay unto the Lord your God. Let all that be round about him bring presence unto him that ought to be feared. The Lord is saying he takes even evil, wickedness, anger, hostility, war against himself, wrath against his people, and he transforms that into praise. And as the psalm says, the remainder of wrath he restrains. He bottles it up, he contains it. This is the Lord. He is the sovereign. And so even these, as it were, pagans, these Ethiopians, these Kushites, these Sudanese are being told by Jehovah, I'm sovereign. I'm the one who controls all of these events. And I will bring what you fear to naught. I'll bring it to nothing by my own power. Where does that leave Ethiopia? Ethiopia. And where does it leave everyone else who reads what God says to them and us? That brings us, thirdly, to submission. Verse 7, verse 7. In that time shall the present be brought unto the Lord of hosts, of a people scattered and peeled, and from a people terrible from their beginning hitherto. A nation meted out and trodden underfoot, whose land the rivers have spoiled, to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, the Mount Zion. God is calling Ethiopia to receive and believe his word, to recognize and confess his sovereign power, and to bow themselves in submission under his throne. They're being called to submit to him. And the fact is that this this call and this prophetic word is indeed fulfilled. So he says, in that time, he's speaking of the future now, shall the present be brought unto the Lord of hosts. We sing about this in Psalm 68. We're going to sing it in a few moments here. In Psalm 68, we sing from verse... You can pick up at... Uh, Verse 28, thy God hath commanded thy strength. Strengthen, O God, that which thou hast wrought for us. Uh, because of thy temple uh, at Jerusalem shall kings bring presents unto thee. Same language as our, our text in verse 7. Nations are going to bring presents unto the Lord. Listen. Verse 30, rebuke the company of the spearmen, the multitude of the bulls, with the calves of the people, till everyone submit himself with pieces of silver, Scatter thou the people that delight in war. Listen, princes shall come out of Egypt. Ethiopia shall soon stretch out her hands unto God. Sing unto God, ye kingdoms of the earth, O sing praises unto the Lord. Right here we're singing about the fact that Ethiopia will stretch out her hands. She is going to come to to submit to the Lord or as it says, to bring presents, as it were before the Lord, to bow before Him, to submit themselves, as the earlier verse says before him. You get the same thing in Psalm87, something similar I should say, in Psalm 87. In Psalm 87 it says, "The Lord loveth verse two, "The Lord loveth the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of thee, O city of God. We're speaking about the church, the Old Testament church. I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon to them that know me. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia. This man was born there. And of Zion it shall be said, This and that man was born in her, and the highest himself shall establish her. So, here again, another psalm. We're singing about Ethiopians who are born in Zion, who have been brought to submission, uh, in submission and faith and yielding to jehovah who are found as it were within the house of his own people within these gates that the lord says are so glorious the city of of god you think okay so we we see it verse 7 tells us where we sing about it in the in the psalm psalm 68 psalm 87 where where can we trace this out where is this where's this going well, we can see in Scripture itself, examples in the Old Testament. So after the destruction of Sennacherib's army, you may recall, after the destruction of, of Sennacherib's army, so the destruction of Assyria, what happens? Presents are brought to Jerusalem, Second Chronicles 32, and... Verse 22, the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all other, and guided them on every side. And many brought gifts unto the Lord to Jerusalem and presents to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was magnified in the sight of all nations from thenceforth. So there we see the initial fulfillment of of this prophecy uh, earlier in in Isaiah but it doesn't end there because in the New Testament we begin to s- we see further examples and expansion don't we we read from Acts 8 on purpose for this reason uh, there's Philip and he's been laboring among the the Samaritans and he heads south uh, into the desert and he discovers a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This is not just the average Joe, is it? He had actually command of all of her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Here's an Ethiopian traveling to Jerusalem, traveling to the place where God's presence had been found and so on in order to worship unto Jehovah. And he's on his way back, he's returning, and he's reading the scriptures. Here's an Ethiopian reading, and guess what he's reading? Isaiah. He's reading the prophecy of Isaiah, no doubt had read chapter 18, along with what's quoted here. And so Philip, under the command of the Lord, comes to him and says, do you, you, know, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, and how can I? I need someone to tell me. And Philip climbs up into the, into the chariot with him and begins to preach the Lord Jesus Christ. And here is a man who now is receiving the gospel, the mouth of a minister, through the, the preaching of the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah. And he's brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're in the New Testament church. And an Ethiopian in these early chapters, chapter 8, an Ethiopian emerges as one who is joining himself to Christ. He's baptized, visibly aligned with, publicly aligned with the, the people of, of God and goes away uh, rejoicing. And so there you see the Lord bringing these things to fulfillment. And there are some who would stop there would say, well, OK, we got after Sennacherib, we see things happening. Yes, there's an instance, for example, It gives us a window in the New Testament to Ethiopians who are coming into the church through the preaching of the gospel and so on. And some would stop right there and say, that's that's it. That's the fulfillment of Isaiah, chapter 18, verse seven and so on. But I do not believe so. In that time, shall the present be brought unto the Lord. This this language. um, It's interesting is is actually expanded. So Later. After the incident with Sennacherib, after Isaiah's day, we have the prophecy of Zephaniah. And there in Zephaniah chapter 3, picking up at verse 8, Therefore wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I shall rise up to the prey, my determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdoms, to pour upon them my indignation, even all my fierce anger, for all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. For then will I turn to the people a pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my suppliants, Even the daughter of my dispersed shall bring mine offering. In that day shalt thou not be ashamed for all thy doings and so on. So here we have Zephaniah later on referring to something that's even more expansive. The Lord returning a pure language to the kingdoms and people that are being brought to him and so on. So this is a more glorious fulfillment referring to the same thing but at a more glorious scale, if you will, than what could be limited to what took place after Sennacherib or a single eunuch and returning to to Ethiopia in Acts chapter 8. No, this passage, like others that we've seen prior, going all the way back to Isaiah chapter 2, where the nations are flowing up the hill of Zion in order to be brought into the the church of the lord jesus christ and like we've seen many times since in chapters 7 9 11 and so on and so forth this is referring to something at a far greater scale it's referring to what we sing about again in the psalms and places like psalm 72 which says they the verse 9 they that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him and his enemies shall lick the dust the kings of tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents Same kind of language. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him that is Christ. All nations shall serve him that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And how often do we have this in the Psalms? You know better than most. We have it everywhere where we're singing about the nations as nations, the Gentile peoples flowing into Zion. Kings pledging their allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Or in the language of Isaiah later on in chapter 49, Gentile kings being nursing fathers and nursing mothers to the church in the New Testament. This is the language that God gives us. Chapter 22, verse 27, all the ends of the earth, this is the Psalms, shall remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he is the governor among the nations. In other words, what we have given to us in comparing scripture with scriptures, I've sought to do, prove to you clearly from the Bible itself, this fits very snugly like yet another piece in the overall puzzle of what we find in the scriptures, that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea that that little leaven is going to fill the whole lump, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the kingdoms of this world shall be made the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Right? This is a description of gospel unparalleled gospel prosperity within the, 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 the post-New Testament age in the gospel being taken to the ends of the world. In other words, the full fulfillment of verse 7 has yet to be seen. Why is that relevant to you? If you have any interest in history, if you have any interest in other countries and geography and so on, and you've taken note of Sudan, and you know something about the history of all that they've been through, and what the Christians are suffering there now at the present moment, it it means a great deal to you. Because if you're a Christian, there's nothing in the entire world that means more to you than the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing that means more to you than the advance of that kingdom. Nothing that means more to you than the glory that is brought to the king himself. And here you can come to places like Isaiah chapter 18, an obscure passage, a difficult passage in many ways. You can come to places like this and gather fistfuls of hope and you can pray in keeping with the will of God praying according to his will according to the word for places like Sudan that the lord would hasten the day when this when they will be as it were bringing presents unto jehovah in submission to him to the place of the name of the lord of hosts to mount zion the church of the living god the church of the lord jesus christ to see them Gathered under the reign of the great king, savingly brought through the converting work of the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of the gospel to see this war torn people and everything else that's associated with them, knowing days of great light. So the darkness gives way and the light shines. And the Lord is pleased to look upon the Cushite people so that they are brought in and we can sing with them that, yes, those from Ethiopia, they have been born here. They have been born in Zion. They have been reborn by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. They are citizens of the great kingdom, the great king himself. Right? This these Old Testament prophetic portions of Scripture, though they seem so distant from us, distant historically, ancient, ancient history, distant in terms of geographically, people and places we haven't been or seen. It's absolutely as close as you can imagine because it pertains to your family, the Church of Christ, to the kingdom of which you're a citizen, to people who would be joined as brothers and sisters with you. Many are at this moment, but many more in time to come. And so this gives us optimism. It gives us not a not a flimsy optimism of the, the people who have, you know, inclinations to, to think the best of things, but a biblically rooted, a biblically grounded op- optimism about who God is and what God will do for his own cause and kingdom. And so here the Lord threatens to destroy. The Lord threatens... All sorts of things with regards to Assyria as well. But in the midst of all of that, here is a people who will be given entrance into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You imagine being a Sudanese coming to Christ and joining yourself to the church and coming to passages like this. And think how meaningful and how impactful that would be. I think that the Lord has promised it, and He's done it, He's kept His word. So it fuels our prayers. We, we're a people that are to be responding to the word with prayer. Our prayers are to be informed by the scriptures. We're to pray God's will according to the rule that he has given to us. This informs our prayers. As do the psalms that we sing, that the Lord would hasten the day for the ingathering at a much larger scale, the Cushite the people into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. We sow and sow and sow, and one of the ways that we sow is sowing in prayer, in order that in due course, the church might reap. And we who sowed and they who will reap in due course shall rejoice together. May the Lord bless these things to our hearing. Almighty God in heaven, we believe, help thou our unbelief, Give to us that our minds would be brought by the Spirit to receive the word with meekness, to lay hold of it and affirm it. We pray, O God, that in the midst of judgment and in the midst of all of the fomenting of nations, that the kingdom of Christ would continue to advance with power. And we do pray, O Lord, for the Sudanese people, for our brethren in the south, all that they shoulder, the burdens that they bear, Give them, O Lord, grace to persevere and to hold up uh, the torch of the gospel uh, in these difficult days. Bless them with days of reviving and and reformation. We pray for the north of Sudan, between them and Egypt, and we ask, O God, that this influence of Islam would be brought to an end, broken, and that these would be delivered from such things and brought to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask, O Lord, hasten the day in which we will see uh, days of great gospel prosperity, uh, days breaking open where there is light coming, as it were, in the midst of darkness in unparalleled and unprecedented ways. O Lord, do hasten that day when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. For we ask these things in Jesus' name,